Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Preeta Gopalan, who is the deputy head of UK litigation for the wonderful organization Reprieve. She works on strategic litigation efforts in the UK, which seek to hold the British government to account for complicity in the death penalty, torture, secret detention, and extrajudicial killings abroad. Preeta Gopalan, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to to join. So you have been this past week or so at at The Hague, uh, at the International Criminal Court. Uh, What has been going on? Yes, so um, there was a hearing last week at the ICC, the International Criminal Court, um, and the hearing was to hear an appeal against the decision um, of the court not to open an investigation into alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed during the war in Afghanistan. Um, And the appeal came about because uh, the ICC's prosecutor, who is responsible for carrying out uh, examinations and preliminary investigations into alleged crimes, had come to the conclusion that there was reasonable evidence of such crimes having been committed, and therefore the prosecutor requested that the court authorize the opening of an investigation um, and in the first time of, uh, ever in the history of the court, the court declined to open an investigation, um, which was quite a shocking decision to um, everyone concerned. And so the appeal was essentially an appeal by both the prosecutor and a number of victims against that decision, um, asking that the appeals chamber of the court reverse the decision and open an investigation. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the International Criminal Court has only prosecuted people from Africa. And when you say crimes committed in Afghanistan, these would be crimes committed by whom? So these would be crimes committed at present by three different parties. So firstly, U.S. forces and the CIA. Secondly, Afghan armed forces, the state forces of Afghanistan. And thirdly, non-armed forces in Afghanistan, so primarily the Taliban. So these are the three uh, parties being potentially investigated for crimes committed in Afghanistan. Um, and and it's um, interesting that you would say that the ICC primarily prosecutes in Africa or leaders from Africa because it's widely acknowledged in this case that um, the decision to decline an investigation was largely due to the fact that the U.S. Um, has failed to cooperate entirely with the work of the court. Right. The United States maintains that, or at least certain figures in the U.S. government maintain that the ICC has no jurisdiction here. Uh, You would suggest otherwise, right? Yes. So the U.S. has, um, you know, not signed on to the Rome Statute, which is the statute from which the ICC derives its mandate. Um, The U.S. has historically made it very clear that it does not recognize the jurisdiction of the courts and it will not cooperate with any sort of um, attempt by the court to investigate or prosecute um, U.S. citizens. Um, And obviously the the international law position is somewhat different in that there are, um, you know, treaties and and customary international law in place, which suggests that um, no one is, um, no one is exempt from accountability. Um, And so, you know, we would maintain that all parties and states around the world who participate 
in human rights abuses of this scale um, are somehow accountable. So there's a there's a point of contention there with the U.S. I think. Yeah, it, not just contention, but the U.S. has taken some dramatic steps, uh, revoking visas and threatening prosecutions. Correct. That is right. Yes. So um, just weeks, actually, before. Um, the court's decision came down that it was not going to authorize an investigation. The U.S. had revoked the entry visa of uh, Ms. Fatou Benzouda, who's the prosecutor of the ICC, um, and followed that up with you know a number of statements about how it will actively um, pursue states and companies who in any way assist the ICC in their investigation, um, that it would even threaten financial sanctions um, or other sanctions against the ICC. Off, um, and basically essentially said that, you know, the U.S. would obstruct any efforts by even other countries um, to assist in the investigation or help surrender U.S. nationals, um, both through diplomatic pressure and financial sanctions, as well as, as immigration sanctions. Is the, is the case for the ICC taking action, uh, or for that matter, for some court in some country under universal jurisdiction, taking action strengthened by the, the ever-lengthening record of the United States justice system failing and, and blatantly refusing uh, to take any actions itself? Yes, that's actually directly relevant because the ICC operates on the principle of complementarity, which means that it only ever prosecutes when domestic courts are unable or unwilling to prosecute. Um, so that's why it calls itself a court of last resort. Um, it, it's where you go when you haven't been able to obtain redress or accountability in your domestic jurisdiction. So in this case, um, you know, if the U.S. has been unable or unwilling to prosecute these crimes and hold perpetrators to account, then the ICC then becomes the court of last resort. Um, and I think, you know, for example, looking, for example, at President Trump pardoning uh, military members who have been convicted of war crimes previously or reinstating the rank of those who have also been accused of war crimes, I think there's a good case there to say that the U.S. is simply unwilling to prosecute. What about the U.K.? Has the U.K. been willing? Mm, that's a really interesting question. As um, We've recently had some coverage here in the U.K. about um, you know allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity being uncovered um, that were allegedly committed by U.K. armed forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I think, you know, we continue at Reprieve, we continue to take the position that there hasn't been um, sufficient accountability in the UK for conduct of, of the armed forces and intelligence services during that time. Um, and that's one of our key areas of work, which is holding to account the UK government um, and agencies for grave human rights abuses that were carried out in the name of the war on terror post 9-11. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly work to be done here. And um, one of the things that Reprieve is currently working on is um, is trying to um, pr pressure or seek uh, a confirmation from the UK government that it will carry out a full judge-led inquiry into UK past abuses carried out during the war on terror. Um, and that's actually a case that's currently pending before the UK court. Um, so this is sort of core to what we do in, at our work at Reprieve, and 
And we think, you know, powerful actors both in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, have plenty to answer for, and the domestic mechanisms haven't necessarily um, gone all the way in holding those perpetrators to account. Yeah, clearly not. We are speaking with Preeta Gopalan, who is Reprieve's deputy head of UK litigation. Um, the, the, the thing that I think drives uh, ordinary people crazy who, who are paying any attention but aren't lawyers and aren't involved in the day-to-day details of this uh, is that, the, you know, in, in, with regard in particular to the United States crimes in Afghanistan, there have been publicly... Uh, proven and documented and and written about in details uh, an established record of blowing up hospitals and murdering civilians and hunting children for sport and on and on and on for literally for decades now uh, and 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 the ICC has proposed to investigate this for for years now mm-hmm. uh, and apparently is not doing it because of political pressure but with the claim that they can't proceed with the investigation. The U.S. is blocking their investigation. What in God's name needs to be investigated? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, this is a fair point because in the Afghanistan situation, the preliminary examination alone took over a decade. Um, and subsequent to that, you know, the, the prosecutor made a request to actually open a, a full investigation. Um, and you make a fair point because one of the arguments we made um, during the hearing last week was that, you know, one of the reasons the court declined to open the investigation was that there's not going to be sufficient cooperation from the U.S. But what we said is there is now a significant body of evidence that exists almost across the world because of the, the transnational nature of the U.S torture and rendition program. You need not rely only on the U.S. or the U.K. to get evidence of what transpired. I mean, the the, the tracks of what happened are across the globe. And so it's one of the arguments the victims made um, during the hearing, and we represented the victims, was that actually even if the U.S. um, declined to cooperate and, and, you know, insisted that it wouldn't, there is evidence that exists already um, that should be sufficient to be able to make the building blocks for a prosecution, and that evidence exists in various jurisdictions across the world because the CIA torture program was transnational in nature. People were captured in various states and then passed through. They were rendered through various other states and detained all along the way. So we're talking about you know, secret prisons in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Poland, in Lithuania, or in Thailand. So it's not that we would have to rely entirely on the U.S. for evidence, um, which is what makes the court's reasoning um, even more incredible. You know, it, it doesn't seem to be a genuine reason not to open an investigation. Very well said. And and if the problem is that the U.S. military won't identify low-ranking individuals to blame, can't you blame the high-ranking individuals? Isn't that the the appropriate course of action? Yes, absolutely. And and the ICC exists to hold those most responsible for the crimes of most concern. So they're not looking to the foot soldiers and they're not looking um, to those lower ranking officials. They are looking at individuals with command responsibility, um, which is something else I think that gets lost sometimes in the public narrative, because 
understandably, there is a lot of sympathy for those in the lower ranks who are following orders, etc., and who found themselves in difficult situations. But in fact, what the ICC focuses on is those most senior, those who had command responsibility, and, and that's who we're focusing on, you know, the driving minds and the driving force behind these programs uh, and behind this conduct. So we just, I think sometimes the public narrative gets muddied because you have um, a sentiment around uh, foot soldiers being blamed. And, and this is what President Trump, for example, is playing into, right, in pardoning pardoning these uh, armed members of the armed forces who were convicted of war crimes, calling them warriors, etc., and, and saying how they've uh, unjustly suffered. Well, that's quite not quite accurate because that's not who the ICC actually looks to hold to account. But the the crime of launching the war in the first place can't be taken up because the ICC didn't take on the the mission of prosecuting such a charge until after Afghanistan had been invaded. Correct? Yes, and um, and the ICC prosecutes crimes that have hap- that happen in the context of conflict. So in in a way, it it sort of began its process once the the war was already ongoing. Um, and its mandate is to actually look at what has happened since 2003, so after the commencement of the conflict. And it's essentially looking at crimes that are committed in the context of conflict, rather than questioning the legality of the conflict itself, if, if you see what I mean. I, I do see what you mean, but I, I may correct me if I'm wrong. Going forward, that's different because the ICC now can also prosecute uh, the the launching of a of a war. Is that not correct? Uh, I'm not actually certain on that point. I'm afraid you may well be right. You uh, may well be right. I I, I believe so. <laughs> Someone will correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> so so you've been in the Hague representing. Uh, particular... Are you um, referring to the crime of aggression? Yes, indeed. Yes. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. You're absolutely right. Yes, the crime of aggression is now recognized as a crime. But but too late. Uh, too late for the aggression against Afghanistan. Unfortunately, yes, quite some years too late. That's right. Um, and, and so you've been representing particular individual victims of war crimes uh, from Afghanistan, correct? What are the what are the stories of the people you've been representing? Yes, so in these proceedings, we represent three uh, individual victims, um, all of whom have suffered significant torture in various CIA black sites in various jurisdictions, um, and two of whom have ended up um, in continued detention, one of whom has actually returned home. Um, They come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, um, of the three Two have chosen to maintain their anonymity for fear of reprisals to themselves and their family. Um, one of them has chosen not to maintain his anonymity, um, and he's a, a gentleman called Ahmad Rabani. And he uh, was a Pakistani taxi driver, just going about his day um, when he was captured by Pakistani security forces in Karachi back in 2002. He was then handed over to the U.S., uh, who promptly rendered him to Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, he was held in several detention sites, secret detention sites, over a period of two years, um, went through extreme forms of torture um, and cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment. Um, And following that, in 2004, 
2004, he was finally moved to Guantanamo Bay, where he's currently being held without trial. He hasn't been charged with any crimes. He's been there now for 15 years. Um, and perhaps what is most shocking about Ahmed's case, um, but not altogether uncommon, is that he was a victim of mistaken identity. So he was mistaken by the U.S. authorities for being a high-ranking al-Qaeda commander. Within days of his capture, it became clear that he wasn't who they thought he was. Um, but instead of you know, correcting the error then and there, he went on to face uh, a further 15 years of torture and detention. So that's, um, that's the story of one of our clients. Um, and at the hearing, you know, we were fortunate as well to hear from uh, representatives of Afghan victims, the so victims uh, of, of the crimes of the Afghan state force and of the Taliban. Um, and these are individuals who either remain in Afghanistan or their families of victims who have died in the conflict um, or who were tortured in the conflict. And these are you know, individuals who have similarly suffered these extreme abuses and have had no accountability or any sort of redress for what they've suffered. And of course, Afghanistan remains in the state of protracted conflict. Um, and they too have seen no accountability for what has happened to them. So there's, you know, there's a plethora of victims that have scattered a little bit around the world and also in Afghanistan um, who are just, who are awaiting nearly two decades on for some sort of um, acknowledgement, first of all, of what happened to them. And secondly, some form of redress, accountability for the perpetrators, and perhaps at, at some point, perhaps one day, reparations. Is it possible that the ICC will proceed to prosecute crimes committed by Afghanistan or perhaps only by the Taliban, uh, but not by the United States and its allies? Um, that looks unlikely, because if uh, the court's decision is overturned by the appeals chamber, then what would happen is the, the investigation as envisaged by the prosecutor, which currently includes the three parties, the U.S., uh, Afghan forces and the Taliban, it will go ahead in that form. So it would be very unlikely, I think, for the U.S. to be somehow carved out of that and indeed would invite um, a huge uproar, much more so than the court has already seen in this, in this particular case, uh, in this decision. So I think that would be quite unlikely. Um, what could be possibly likely is um, if there are other parties who might be seen to be also have contributed to those crimes. So, for example, there is talk of uh, British forces now with the you know, recent reporting on, on the evidence uncovered of UK force involvement in such crimes. There is a possibility that... Um, depending on how the, the judgment is from the hearing last week, there is a possibility that the investigation could be widened if the prosecutor deems it appropriate and that there is sufficient evidence um, that the UK could also be brought into the investigation and could then become a subject of investigation as well. And perhaps Australia, perhaps several others? Yes, um, you know, where, where there is evidence of collusion by other states, particularly states that um, have signed up to the to the treaty, um, the Rome Statute. Then, and there is evidence, and the prosecutor is willing to examine that evidence and find that it meets the criteria and the threshold of the court. 
then yes, that is a possibility too. And so how did it go and what happens next and what's, what's the timing, do you think? Yeah, so the hearing um, itself, uh, from our perspective, was, was very, um, you know, telling and moving uh, in many ways. And I think uh, the court heard a significant amount of testimony from victims' representatives. Um, and that is what we as Reprieve were hoping to bring to the proceedings, because obviously the decision itself is being challenged by the prosecutor, who has a specific mandate, um, is part of the court, but is independent and, and is upholding um, the purpose of the court. And so the prosecutor sort of approaches this in a very um, legalistic, but not in a negative way, legalistic in the sense that the prosecutor wants to fulfill her duty. And so that is what she brings to the court. Um, but what we brought, Reprieve and other victims' organizations, both um, victims uh, of the U.S. torture program, but also victims of Afghan crimes and Taliban crimes, what we brought, I think, was the perspective of the actual individuals who have suffered through these abuses, who remain in in their in, in a limbo, who are awaiting accountability, um, who want their stories heard and acknowledged. And so we, in making the legal arguments that were very similar to what the, the prosecutor made, we also brought to the fore some of the individual stories. Um, in terms of how we went, I think there's consensus across the board between the prosecutor as well as the victims that Legally, we're on very sound footing to have challenged the decision because the truth is this was a decision that was a complete outlier in the history of the court and uh, it didn't hold water from a legal perspective. And that makes sense because it was you know, quite evidently and, and well acknowledged to be um, an accommodation of the political realities of today. Um, so we are hopeful that uh, the decision will be reversed. We hope that the appeals chamber finds no other uh, possible decision but that. Um, and in terms of going forward, uh, we are expecting a judgment within the next three to four months. So we think something might be handed, a judgment might be handed down around April next year. Um, and depending on the judgment, of course, if, if it is that uh, the decision is overturned, then an investigation by the prosecutor will go ahead. Um, and that and could take upheld, years, decades, yeah. Uh, centuries. Yeah, I mean, it could certainly could take years. Um, seeing as, you know, the preliminary examination took over a decade, um, it could take some years, that's for sure. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's certainly uh, impetus from all parties, and the prosecutor is certainly keen to proceed, but the wheels of the ICC turn very slowly for various reasons, um, as some of which we've just discussed. But, you know, that would be that would be a big win um, from the perspective of, you know, the ICC's mandate and its viability and its credibility. And, and so if everything goes right and some years from now there are some convictions of former mm. or current U.S. officials who mm. presumably will not turn themselves in and the United States will not extradite them to anywhere and they will perhaps travel less, mm -hmm. assuming they're still alive, uh, who, mm -hmm. who, uh, who might some of those people be? That is an interesting question, um, and I think it is illustrative for us to look to some of those that the court 
has um, or the prosecutor has has brought uh, prosecutions against and that the court has convicted. And these involve ranking individuals in, in the government and in the armed forces at the time. So we've had heads of state who have been uh, prosecuted previously. We've had um, heads of the military. We've got high-ranking officials in the ministries of defense. Um, so in the case of the U.S., I think, you know, we'd be looking um, at high-ranking individuals within the structure of the CIA, for example. So if we bear in mind that the ICC prosecutes those most responsible um, for the crimes of most concern to the international community, we are talking about um, high-ranking individuals within the ranks of the government and the armed forces and the intelligence services. So possibly directors of the CIA, uh, secretaries of so-called defense, uh, presidents of the United States uh, over the past uh, almost 20 years? Yep, theoretically, all of those are possible. Um, and of course, you know, politically, the question remains to be seen whether or not, um, you know, the ICC is able and, and is, is able to discharge its mandate by holding those people accountable. Uh, but yes, certainly theoretically, they will fall. They would fall within uh, the jurisdiction of the court. There was a big front page story on on Monday today, as we're recording this on the in the Washington Post about Afghanistan. Did you see that? Uh, was this relating to uh, President Trump bringing along the uh, members of the armed forces that he pardoned to a fundraising dinner in in Florida, or, or are you thinking of something else? Uh, no, though that is deserving of plenty of of outrage <laughs> itself. Uh, this is a this is a story about a huge pile of documents uh, that the Washington Post has got its hands on from the past yes. decades. Yes. Uh, yeah. from, uh, from Rumsfeld's era and, and the various uh, communications during his time and in particular the activities of the armed forces and intelligence services in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, it's, it's very much a sort of a breaking news, the sky is blue story. Uh, you know, they've, <laughs> they've been lying about Afghanistan. They've been predicting imminent success and it wasn't happening in Afghanistan, right. as if anyone didn't know this. But do, does it help in any way to have this sort of documentation of, of intent? We have to say intentional now because they are always claiming mm. to accidentally lie. Intentional lying by these officials. Yes, I mean, every every piece of evidence that helps build the picture brings us closer to possible prosecutions. Um, so, you know, revelations such as these, particularly because they are official documents um, showing communications between, you know, high-ranking individuals in the government at the time and in the armed forces at the time, of course, will be invaluable evidence. Um the, the issue, of course, is that in order for this evidence to be adduced and to be brought to any, any use, we need an investigation. Um, and the prosecutor needs to be able to do her job, which is to investigate and then to prosecute. But certainly all of this information and evidence that is emerging, um, you know, albeit slowly and over a period of nearly two decades, all of them go towards building the picture, certainly. There are organizations that have petitioned the ICC to proceed with this. Is, is that sort of public demand helpful or what might people do to help this effort or to help the work that Reprieve does? 
Um, I think certainly what we saw at the hearing last week is that uh, a number of different actors came forward uh, to impress upon the court why it was important for that decision to be overturned. And that included everyone from, of course, victims' organizations um, and those representing victims like Reprieve, as well as other Afghan NGOs and human rights organizations. Uh, but it also included you know, professors of law and academics um, and, for example, uh, an individual who's now a, a professor uh, of international law who was involved in the drafting of the Rome Statute, who, who essentially came forward and said this, this was never the point of the ICC, to shield the most responsible from accountability. And, and the whole point of the ICC was to end impunity. We've been speaking with Preeta Gopalan, who is Reprieve's deputy head of UK litigation. Preeta, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It's a pleasure. Thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.